welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lizenby. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. Today we have Val from Woodspell Apothecary here with us to discuss spring magic from a plant-based perspective. Val is an herbalist, moon gardener, and artist living in Michigan's North Woods on unceded Anishinaabe land. She is the owner of Woodspell Apothecary, where she offers potent plant tonics and herbal goods for those who wish to bridge the practical and magical healing aspects of plant medicine. She is also the host of the Healer's Moon podcast, where she explores the many facets of folk healing. Val keeps the values of environmental justice, social justice, and sustainability at the core of her work. Her main aspiration within her work is to reveal the truth that we are indeed living in an enchanted world full of spirit, memory, and wisdom, and that despite the chaos of modern times, there is power in reclaiming the ability to heal oneself through the natural world. Val and I got to connect once in real life after being internet friends through the Witch Wide Web in northern Michigan at Shorts Brewery and share a beer or two. I so admire her work in the world of herbalism. I'm an avid fan of her bitters. Listeners, you have to try them and find her photography, writing, and art stunning. Thank you so much for being here, Val, today to talk about spring and plant magic. We are honored. Oh my gosh, that was a wonderful intro. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Before we begin, would you be able to share your big three in astrology with our listeners? Yeah, so I am a Scorpio sun, Scorpio moon, and Pisces rising. So a lot of water, a lot of emotions. (laughs) Yes, Pisces season coming to a close right now. Yes, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling it too. I really am feeling it. Just crying, crying yes. and dreaming. <laughs> yes, yes. It's all a part of the process, all a pro- part of the process. Totally. And can you share a little bit about your work uh, in your own words? Yeah, definitely. So I live here in the forest on about 12 acres of land, and it's pretty much 95% wooded. So I've really been exploring the different medicines and just different healing aspects of the plants here in the forest and then incorporating some of my own sort of ancestral Slavic lineages into medicine making and just living a more plant-based life. And so, yeah, I I offer mostly bitters, digestive bitters right now because I kind of started along this plant path uh, because of some chronic digestive issues that I was dealing with that literally nobody could help me with. I went to so many conventional doctors and they just gave me 
the same thing, take Tums, you know, sorry, like nothing constructive. So the digestive bitters was really my initiation into the plant world. And so that's why I offer them to everybody else, because I know digestive issues are such a prevalent thing in our modern society with all the sugar, processed foods, things like that. Uh, But yeah, I've really been exploring just all the facets of the forest, of my lineage, and just all of the wonderful things that plants have to offer. And the bitters too, I feel like are so accessible for folks who might not know herbal healing. Like there's something I can get my boyfriend to drink in some seltzer, you know, or like some of these other concoctions. He's like, what are you giving me? I'm not going to take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. And it's funny too, because most people know bitters as, you know, Mm -hmm. like cocktail bitters, things like that. But the, I guess the general mainstream doesn't really realize that bitters are also a digestive tonic that you can take too to help stimulate digestion. And, you know, hundreds of years ago, they were one in the same cocktail bitters, digestive bitters. It was the same thing. And then with prohibition, they kind of split off and went their separate ways. But yeah, bitters are just so easy to take and you can even take them straight from the dropper. It's like this instant sort of Uh, stimulation into your digestive system. So you don't have to wait a really long time to feel the effects, which I think is so potent too, especially in this time when everybody just wants to take a pill and make it, you know, easier. And so these are pretty easy for people to take if you can get past the bitter part. So I I really tried to, you know, combine some more aromatics and different flavors to make it more palatable too. And eventually kind of learn to really enjoy the flavor. At least I do. (laughs) Yeah, the bitterness definitely grows on you, at least in my experience. Yeah, there's kind of this, I don't really know what the scientific process is on the body, but eventually after you start taking them for a while, you kind of start to crave them because Mm -hmm. that bitter taste is something that we have evolved with. You know, back in the day, millions of years ago, every plant was bitter. Every plant, lots of plants were poisonous, all those bitter compounds. And so we really co-evolved with this bitter taste. And now you can't find it really anywhere in the modern Mm -hmm. diet and any foods besides maybe some bitter greens, but you know, that's very sort of seasonal. You never really know about that. So our body, I think, knows what it's missing. And so once you start mm-hmm. to incorporate that back into your health routine, into your diet, it's just like you you kind of rely on it a little bit. How did you um, like come to your formulations as well as with the names? Because I think the names that you've chosen are so magical. Like I know that my favorites, like the Baba Yaga bitters, for example. Yeah, that's one of uh, my most popular ones. And actually, it's so funny because the I started my business with only three bitters. That was all I had in my shop. And uh, those are still the three most popular that I have in my shop. And really, formulations come to me in a lot of different ways, either through stories or through dreams or just sitting with the plants and observing and seeing how you know, the bees interact with them. Like, for example, I have a blend called Spellbound and it's uh, based on anise hyssop is one of the main ingredients. There's lavender and skullcap and all of these really sort of hypnotic nervine herbs, which are also soothing and stimulating to the digestive system. But basically I was growing this herb in my garden and I was just watching the bees and the bees love anise hyssop. And towards the end of the season, they become really like sort of slow and lazy and they just kind of, I don't know, hover over the anise hyssop and just sleep on the blooms. And it felt like they were almost being hypnotized, like they were kind of spellbound. So I was like, man, it'd be so nice to be able to, you know, incorporate this sort of effect of just 
calming the mind, calming the body, despite our sort of busy schedule. And so that was sort of one of the stories that formed itself is just from observing the bees. And then Baba Yaga, of course, is from my Slavic lineage. And so I incorporated a lot of different, you know, digestive herbs, obviously, but also different herbs that sort of embody this crone aspect like motherwort and rosemary and sage and all of these very sort of wise herbs. And so all of them have their own flavor, but they also have their own sort of indications. So Babiaga is really great for sort of damp, sluggish mental, you know, processes or digestion. And Spellbound is really good for that sort of tense um, sort of constitution as well. It really helps to unbind those knots. And so, yeah, they're all very unique, but uh, they all do stimulate digestion. And that's, that's the main, main goal at least. Mm-hmm. And have you always worked with plants? Like, did you grow up working with plants and growing them? I know you mentioned you got into bitters because you were, you know, having some digestive issues. Um, But beyond that, like, was there a moment where you're like, yes, I want to work with plants? Or do you feel like it's always kind of been a part of you? No, yeah, it's definitely been a journey. I think I've always had a very deep connection to the land, to the plants, you know, I'm very grateful to have grown up in a place that has just amazing lakes and rivers and sand dunes and forests and all of these wonderful places to explore as a kid. And we camped a lot with my family. So I was always outside, but, you know, growing up in a very traditional Midwestern family, it wasn't, you know, being an herbalist, being, believing in magic, those sort of things really wasn't accessible to me. Like I always felt like there was something just under the surface that I couldn't really grasp in my sort of childhood mentality, but it was always still there. And so as I grew up, I kind of put that side of myself on the back burner so I could fit in and, you know, get a job and all of those things. But then uh, I think the initiation really was those chronic digestive issues and showing me that, you know, not all doctors, conventional doctors have the answers. And that's something, at least in the Midwest, you grow up believing is that every doctor has the answer and that's not always the case. And so once I saw that some of these different plant medicines were helping me in such a deep way that conventional medicine couldn't, not just on a physical level, but also on sort of an energetic and mental level, I was like, I need to do this for the rest of my life. Because up until that point, I was a designer. I was um, a 3D animator and modeler. And so I graduated from art college and I was doing all of those things, which I loved. I really love art and I still do that in my business, but the plants made it seem like it was just like one of those things where, you know, you don't really have a choice in the matter. It's like, this is what you're going to do. And so that was kind of the first step, I feel like. So I know we're all beaming in from different parts of the world, as I'm sure our listeners are as well, but what plants are you working with right now? Or maybe I should say, um, what plants are you looking forward to working with as we venture into spring? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm a little bit behind, but I'm just starting all of my seeds right now, which is the most exciting time of the year, I feel like, especially with such a short growing season we have here in Michigan. So I have all of my favorites, of course, like lemon balm and nettle and motherwort. Um, I'm also really excited to start some other seeds like ladies mantle, which 
Uh, I can forage here, but I really want to start growing it myself mm-hmm. because it's just such a feminine sort of empowering herb that has these just beautiful fan-like leaves and it's so soft and it collects dew. And the alchemist actually used to collect the dew from the ladies' mantle and make different sort of magical preparations. So it just feels like a very nourishing, magical plant. So I'm really excited to try and grow it actually. So that I think that will be really exciting. Um, I'm also excited to maybe grow some lovage, which is sort of a folk traditional herb in Poland where I'm, my family is from. And so usually people will use it as sort of a food or like a uh, sort of spice or something, but people in Poland also used to use it as sort of a uh, medicine as well. And of course there's, you know, a very fine line between food and medicine, especially in traditional societies. But mm-hmm. lovage is also sort of this feminine herb that used to be used as an aphrodisiac. So I'm really excited to work with that plant. Um, alder is also coming into season here soon, which I love harvesting because it usually grows by different streams and rivers. It's a great lymphatic herb, just like where it grows. It's just full of this sort of watery life force, which is very sort of symbolic of spring. So yeah, there's just, I mean, too many to name, but those are just a few that I'm really looking forward to working with, especially since it's still snowing out here. I'm really looking forward to some greenery. That's for sure. I can hear how much you love plants just like from hearing you talk about them and I can see you too and I can see you getting (laughs) excited so yeah I completely completely relate to that I think sowing seeds is like so fun and Mm -hmm. right now I'm also planting like all the things and it's like you almost have to pull yourself back a little bit because you know in like a few months you're going to be completely overloaded mm-hmm. oh yeah plants. I always grow or order way too many seeds and I end up either just saving the seeds till next year or like pawning off my seedlings to other people mm-hmm. which may, may or may not survive in their hands but at least I, I tried <laughs> so yeah I'm really I'm really excited and yeah plants are they're magical and just feeling you know your hands in the soil for like the first time in you know five six seven eight months here like it's just it's you know not even the plants themselves, but just feeling that connection between the hands and the earth is just, it's, it's, yeah, it's a special sort of Mm -hmm. little ritual for me. Mm. Are there any um, Slavic or Polish magical practices moving into the spring that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the biggest ones that has kind of been appropriated by Christianity, but still has very strong Slavic roots uh, is the Pisanki egg. And as we know, eggs are very just symbolic of spring in general. You know, it's sort of this life force. And even in Hinduism, like one of the first elements of their cosmology is the egg where the sky and the earth came from. So this egg is just the embodiment of spring. And of course, you know, spring is also a part of the waxing moon season. It's part of the the maiden season. So all of these just represent that. And so in Poland, a lot of people will decorate eggs, not just sort of the, you know, cheap dyeing the eggs, putting them in the food coloring vinegar (laughs) dye or whatever, which was fun as kids, but 
in Poland, they actually use this really interesting tool called a kistka, I believe is how you pronounce it. And it's melted beeswax that they actually draw designs onto this egg and then they dye it in different colors and then they peel off the wax and it can get very intricate. So they paint different symbols of, you know, protection of fertility on the egg and then they blow out the actual egg portion. And so all you have left is the shell, which can be very fragile, but yeah, so they use these pisankis just to keep around the house as sort of these symbols of uh, the coming growing season and for protection for the crops, for the livestock. And yeah, so I'm actually really excited to work on that hopefully tomorrow or so. But yeah, I can get into a really in-depth sort of process. So definitely the egg is one of the biggest sort of symbols of Polish or Slavic traditional spring sort of rituals. And of course, just different working with different plants and whatnot. Uh, there's the birch tree, which is very important in Slavic mythology and folk medicine. Of course, this is when, you know, the sap of the birch starts flowing up from the roots back into the trunk and into the, the branches and the buds and all of that. And so a lot of people will actually tap the birch trees to get that uh, sort of, I don't know what you call it, actually. It's like a they tap the birch sap and you can just drink it straight from the tree, which I think is so magical just to be able to commune with the tree, like straight from the trunk, which is just so cool. And of course, birch sap is just really cleansing. It's a wonderful just nourishment to the winter body. It sort of wakes you up. So yeah, birch is also a wonderful plant to work with in Slavic medicine. Yeah, really, whatever is blooming around you, I think, can be sort of a ritual herb, a ritual plant to work with for spring. But that's those are just two of my favorites. Mm. I'll have to try the the egg yeah. blowing out the yolks. I live in Greenpoint, <laughs> which is like the Polish neighborhood here in Brooklyn, too. So oh, I'm cool. going to have to see if I could find some of that paint or bug one of my neighbors or something. <laughs> yeah, I bet you could probably find like a kit or something to do that. I've not, I have never actually tried to blow out the egg. Usually I just leave it in there because I'm too scared, but you can definitely, you know, hopefully get that yolk out. So that way it'll last longer too. It's a little bit more fragile, but you know, the inside of the egg won't rot. So yeah, that would be really cool to see if there's any sort of people that still do that sort of tradition around there. We used to do it with my mom. Oh man, now I'm like having like a sensory memory of this. Like, so <laughs> we definitely did it. And, but I remember messing them up. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's a it's very delicate process, especially like for a kid and stuff like it's, yeah, I can definitely imagine that. And they're really seeds in themselves. Like we were talking mm. about seed magic and mm. eggs. It's like one in the same in a lot of ways. Yeah, it really is. I love that. Mm. So I know you're a lover of folklore because you mentioned fairy tales and you mentioned Baba Yaga. Um, and I know there's a lot of folklore surrounding plant lore on equinoxes and solstices. So in your professional or personal opinion, um, do you think equinoxes and solstices are potent days for plant medicine and plant magic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and there's definitely certain plants or herbs that were only collected on those certain days as well, especially the summer solstice. I think especially like tulip uh, poplar, St. John's wort, those sort of things were only, you know, collected on those days. And I mean, I think St. John's wort was collected on different days, but those were the most 
potent days to collect them. And so so spring equinox, I'm not so sure in Slavic mythology, if there were like specific plants you could only harvest on those days, but I definitely think, you know, harvesting on those days or also on the full moon is just a really special time to do that. And in Slavic and Polish folklore, wreaths are like one of the biggest symbols of magic, of ritual there. So creating wreaths with different spring wildflowers and spring herbs is, you know, just a really sort of important ritual in that sort of sense, I think. Mm. I know, Kate, we've talked about flower essences before and collecting dew off the petals. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if it was you know, spring or summer we were talking about, but it just sounds so magical, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's real life too. I think it was at Lady's Mantle actually, because Robin, Rose Bennett, when I was at her house for apprenticeship, she had us all like get down on the earth and drink the dew off of Lady's Mantle. And it was amazing. I was Mm -hmm. like, I just want to live right here on the ground. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it, it, it working with that is, I think you mentioned the alchemists earlier. Mm-hmm. It is kind of an alchemizing thing. Yeah, like that's, I don't really, really remember what the significance was, but they would include ladies' mantle dew in their preparations to sort of give it that extra magical touch. And in folklore, that was like the fairy pools, like of ladies' mantle leaves, those little dew drops were like thought of as fairy pools, which I think is so interesting. And yeah, spring flower essences are actually my favorite thing to make. It feels like it's just such a potent time to be making essences. You know, these are the first blooms of the season. Like I love wood violet and snowdrops and uh, even daffodils, like all of those sort of flower essences are my absolute favorite to make. Mm. I saw a bunch of daffodils coming up in the park here in Brooklyn the other day. And I was like, awesome. And then there was like 14 robins. We counted. I was just like, it's spring. (laughs) I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. That's, that's crazy. I know. I remember when I lived in Colorado, like the things would bloom in, you know, March, sometimes even February. I'm like, where am I right now? This is like a whole other world. It's crazy to think that things actually bloom before May in other parts of the world. Northern Michigan has so much fae energy, though. Mm. It is just, oh my when you were talking about the fae and, and, like, mm. the ladies' mantle, I there's nowhere like, like, the northern part of Lake Michigan and the Sleeping Bear Dunes. And Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think that might actually be where, like, my, I don't know, love of magic and just the communication between land and earth was my parent or my grandparents live on porch lake so um which is just in the very northern part of michigan it's considered like one of the like the third prettiest or most beautiful lake in the world like it has you know waters like the caribbean it's like this turquoise blue in the middle of northern michigan which is so wild and i feel like there's just so much magic there. So I totally get what you mean. And especially too, when you go to the UP and the upper peninsula, like that's a whole other world because they still have all of their, you know, forests, like most of the UP is forested. So there's some beautiful like hemlock groves and white pine groves and the porcupine mountains are beautiful. We were just there a few weeks ago, um, hiking and enjoying the snow sort of season, but also the green season is just I think it's just that combination. Lake Superior. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's like I don't know if <laughs> it's it, an it, inland sea. It's it, giant. It's, it's an it's inland a, sea. Oh my gosh! Yeah, 
I yeah. get excited like thinking about it and how the water, <laughs> how the tannins make it kind of orange. And mm-hmm. Well, I think Lake Superior too has its own sort of personality. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. different lakes are, uh, I think they all have their own personality, but Lake Superior definitely has the strongest personality. You know, it has these gales during, you know, October and November that you would only associate it with the ocean, but it's very... Um, you know, frigid, even during the summer. And it has these beautiful sort of ice caps and can also be, you know, just this beautiful thing to refresh yourself in during summer too. So it has all of these different facets. So I definitely think that water can have its own sort of magic and personality to it. So I definitely feel Mm. very, you know, close to the different you know, magical places here in Michigan, because I feel like it doesn't get enough love. Like everybody, um, you know, doesn't really associate a lot of magic with Michigan, but it, there's, there's a lot here. There really we is. We can't tell too many people. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to edit that part out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can't know. No, my yeah. grandpa used to lead snowmobile trips around Lake Superior. And oh, so wow. hearing those stories from him growing up, I mean, and, and then going there, people surf it. Yeah. Like if you can see winter surfing videos of people on Lake Superior and it's a, it is like the graveyard of the Midwest too the Edmund mm-hmm. Fitzgerald all of oh, these yeah. the shipwreck museum it's yeah yeah I'm like I, nostalgic I know right <laughs> I mean what other state has like a song about a ship that sunk in their lake like it's and a kind of famous song like every Michigander knows the Edmund Fitzgerald song. Like, it's just mm-hmm. a classic, it's a classic <laughs> household name. But yeah. It's... And it's it's the folklore of the space. Like, yes. it has such a beautiful folklore. And thinking about, like, the Sleeping Bear Dunes and, you know, the bears swimming across the lake becoming Manitou mm-hmm. Islands. Mm-hmm. Like, it has such a rich, um, storied history. Yeah. And I think maybe that's one a part of it, too, is that a lot of the indigenous folklore and stories are here, too. Like, no matter who you are or how you grew up, if you live in Michigan, you know the stories of the sleeping bear sand dunes and like how mm-hmm. that all came to be. So these different places sort of get their own, you know, mythology too, which I think is really fascinating. And there's still such a very strong indigenous presence, especially in Northern Michigan. Um, you know, there's a lot of tribes that are still very active there, which we're very grateful for. So yeah, I think there's just so many different facets between the water and the earth and then the forests. And yeah, there's just a, so many different Petoskey stones. Ah, oh, the Petoskey stones. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Kristen like, and I, we wrote a book about crystals for uh for Tamed Wild. And I was mm-hmm. like, we have to put the Petoskey stone in there. Yes. And I remember there were Shelby and Danielle were like, what is this? I've never heard of this. Yeah. <laughs> as a Californian, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but they sound amazing. Yes. Yeah, ancient fossils found in like this one place. It's wild. It's wild to think of, too, that, you know, the Porcupine Mountains that are in the UP used to be as tall as the Himalayas. Like, these mountains are some of the oldest mountains in the entire continent, you know, and then they've just been around for so long that they've been reduced to these, I think, the tallest one's like 1,500 feet or something like that. But yeah, so there's so much history there. And then, yeah, all of that coral that's been fossilized and that you can still find like it's still a very common stone to find if you just go along the beaches and so that's a really magical part of history that you can physically touch here too I love it I love every part of it me too I'm like uh, (laughs) you guys need to write a book on like all the folklore of Michigan because I feel like I don't know any of this at all but it's so interesting yeah I mean I don't think there's a whole lot of 
Uh, I think there is interest, but I think feel like it's been a more recent thing. You know, up until recently, I feel like it's just been a very sort of traditional Midwestern state. You know, you work hard, you put dinner on the table and that's it. You don't really, you know, look further into the folklore, even though it's been there this whole time, even though everybody knows the folklore of the Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes and like the Keweenaw singing sands and all of those different things. So yeah, I think now though, people are really starting to want to learn more about that stuff. So that'd be really cool. <laughs> Nakana Island had its own um, uh, witch trial also. What? I did yeah. not know that. I yes. did not know that at all. Oh my God. I'll send you some articles after this listeners. I'll put it in the show notes, but um, yeah. And so there's still like the drowning pool there and it's people will tell like um, ghost stories about it, things like this. Wow. Okay. I love history. I'm a huge history nerd. And like knowing the story of places, I feel like gives a place so much more magic too. like, it just adds that extra essence. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I need to, I need to hear about that. I've never heard. Yeah. And Sheldrake, we stayed in Sheldrake, uh, ghost town a few summers ago. We took Cody's motorcycle and did like a lap around the UP. Yeah. But Sheldrake, um, is a, a whole like ghost town that has a great story also. I'll have to find it. There's so many like abandoned ghost towns in the UP and especially like graveyards. Like there's so many abandoned graveyards that people go to explore. I, I haven't seen any of them myself, but yeah, but I think there's just so much like untouched history too. Like barely anybody lives up there. So everything's been preserved pretty well, which is not very common. I feel like nowadays. Book forthcoming. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you just opened a physical space too. I mean, do you want to speak a little bit about that um, in Northern Michigan? I think that's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot going on. So we, uh, <laughs> we kind of live in the middle of Northern Michigan in a very small town, but there was definitely a need to expand my production space and to get a commercial kitchen and all of these legal things so that the FDA is satisfied and all of that wonderful part of owning a products herbal business. And so also it was a big, I don't know, I live in the middle of the woods, so we don't have neighbors. You can't see the neighbors. I spend a lot of time talking to my cats, which is fine with me, but also I think there is a little pull for me to want to be part of a physical community. And I love the online community that I have and all of that. But, um, there was also that pull to sort of interact with real people. And so, yeah, we just, uh, my husband, well, I guess me, but my husband was the one who sort of made me do the final push and was like, just do it. And so I leased a place like right at the main stoplight. We have, I think, two stoplights in town. So the main stoplight is where our building is. And so, yeah, I'm really excited. We're hoping by uh, midsummer we'll have the actual retail portion open for some walk-ins. It's, it's still a small space, but I really want to, you know, showcase not only my products, but different products from other local herbalists. I know there are some wonderful uh, herbalists in Michigan who really, I would love to carry their stuff like uh, Flora Fungi. She's in Au Gray. There's uh, Bare mm -hmm. Earth Herbals, obviously, you know, probably in um, Kingsley, Michigan, and she does all those wonderful teas. Uh, so yeah, there's so many people that I love to carry their products there too. And so to bring that sort of aspect of um, healing of plant medicine to a small town in Michigan, I'm really excited about. I don't know how people are going to um, react to, because again, it's just, a, it's a small little town, but I think there is that interest. Like people are sort of tired of the conventional route. They're tired of 
doctors pushing pills and, you know, they just want to be able to take care of themselves, which I think is one of the beautiful things about plant medicine. It's so empowering. So I think, you know, it's an odd combination, but I think it'll be a good balance. And I think people will be excited about it. And of course, anybody can come visit too, you know, we'll be, mm-hmm. we'll be open. I don't know the hours yet, but yeah, that's, that's the big project right now that we're getting shelves. That's, that's the next thing to do. I feel like the internet has really kind of helped. Like I never would have said that herbalist was a thing, even when I was growing up, even though we had like big gardens or like mm-hmm. might have taken herbal medicine, but I feel like now Instagram, all of these spaces kind of help shape that. Oh yeah. Like herbalist, like that wasn't even on my radar growing up. Like for some reason, like you could be a marine biologist. I don't know why everybody thought you could be a marine biologist. <laughs> That's like what I wanted to be. <laughs> Me too. There was a moment where I was like, I want to be a marine biologist. Like, I don't know why that, that was such a common thing. paleontologist. Yes. Just I always thought that would things. be cool. Right. <laughs> so there are just these random things that you thought you could be growing up, but yeah, herbalism and, you know, alternative medicine wasn't even on the radar. Uh, like chiropractic Professional medicine. witch. Yes. Pro- <laughs> you know what? If Yes, exactly. That's my part-time job, but yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, chiropractic medicine was, is actually really big here. Um, I think chiropractic medicine was actually founded in the Midwest, either in Illinois or Wisconsin or something like that. So that's sort of a little aspect of alternative medicine. That's pretty big here. I love my chiropractor. I highly recommend everybody go. Um, (laughs) But, you know, other than that, yeah, I think we're finally sort of being able to expose people to this wild world of plant medicine. It's really exciting. So for people who are looking to work with plants but have no idea where to start because it can be so intimidating, um, what might you recommend? Yeah, people ask me this all the time and I totally get it. There's just so much to it, but I always say just start with what is around you. Like literally what is growing in your yard? What is growing in your park? You know, what is calling to you? I think one of the biggest things that we've sort of forgotten as far as just humans in general is how to tap into our intuition. And I think that's one of the most valuable things that we can learn how to reclaim. And so if something is, you know, sort of calling your name, if something is piquing your curiosity, if there's a plant that, you know, looks beautiful to you that you're drawn to, like work with that plant, because I don't believe that there's any coincidences when it comes to plants, because plants have their own way of communicating to us too. They have their own way of communicating to pollinators on a biological and sort of a vibrational level. So there's a reason why you're drawn to a certain plant. So I think, you know, and that's part of that deep intuition that is trying to come back to the surface. And so really, if there's just something that you know, even if it's, it doesn't even have to be like a deep gut feeling, even if it's just a passing, like, oh, that plant smells good. Oh, that plant is pretty. Oh, there's just something about this plant that I like, like look into using that plant. And I also suggest always working with, you know, maybe an herbalist in the area because most herbalists, well, I mean, not most, but a lot of herbalists in different areas will offer plant walks. And so you can actually go into the wild and 
um, you know, get that sort of herbal education directly from a person who works with the plants and get to interact with the plants on an actual physical level instead of just reading about them on the internet. And so really knowing the plants that grow around you, even the weeds, like those are some of the most potent medicinal plants that you can work with. And so, yeah, just looking into what is piquing your curiosity and dive into just one plant at a time and, and just work on creating just the most deep relationship you can with that plant, make it into a tea, make it into a tincture, you know, chew on the leaves. Like there's something so primal and medicinal about just tasting a plant or a tree twig. You know, there's a lot of aromatics that are in tree bark too, that we don't even know about. I remember the first time I went on a plant walk with Jim McDonald, who is an amazing herbalist here in Michigan. He had us chew on some barberry twigs and it was like, the wildest thing I had ever noticed because it's this bright neon yellow bark and it has this very bitter, very astringent, potent aromatic that I'm like, I've never tasted this before. And it's right from a twig. Like you can literally chew on twigs. So, and of course, you know, just to, as a disclaimer, make sure whatever you're chewing on or taking is safe <laughs> and that you've identified it correctly. But yeah, is I think the main thing is just about being curious because I feel like the details the science, the measurements just get in the way. And, and so when we remove all of that and just think about what is calling to me in this moment, that will lead you down the path. You know, you don't have to have an idea of where you're going. You just have to find a place to start. And as far as spring goes, if you want some actual plants that I could suggest, their um, wild mint is very safe for people who are pregnant, kids, like literally anybody. So mint is one of the first places to start because also everybody knows the flavor of mint. It's a very familiar plant to sort of enter that realm. And of course, medicinally, mint is so wonderful, not only for its aromatics, but it's very soothing to the digestive system. So it calms digestive spasms and inflammation. Uh, it's also calming just to the nervous system as well. It's just very soothing. Um, another one of my favorite spring plants is uh, wild ramps or, you know, leeks or whatever you call them, wherever you are. And these are more of a food, but there's something really um, magical about harvesting the leaves and making them into pestos because food is medicine too. And they're also antimicrobial. So they're great for sort of stimulating that digestive system and fighting off any bacteria, whatever's going on in there. And so I love working with ramps during the spring too. Uh, this is also a time when lemon balm is peeking out and lemon balm is like my heart herb. Like I don't think I could survive without lemon balm because it's so soothing. It's so aromatic. Like you can't create a chemical compound that comes anywhere close to a fresh lemon balm leaf. And it's also in the mint family. So it's also very, you know, has those similar aromatic properties to mint as well. So I love working with lemon balm, also very safe. So you can use it in a tea and it's a wonderful nerve. It's wonderful to soothe the heart. If you're feeling weary, you know, the world is so chaotic. So lemon balm is a wonderful herb to sort of tap into that heart chakra and really sort of just soothe the entire body. So those are a few of my spring favorites. But again, like I said, just see what's growing around you. Those are the plants that, uh, you know, need your attention. I think uh, an herbalist that I heard once say the medicine that you need most grows 
near your door. And then sort of the most, uh, you know, the rarest, most acute herbs grow deep in the forest and all of those things. But the medicine you need most is already growing around you. So we just have to learn how to look for it in a nutshell. (laughs) I love that. You can find like mugwort all over the sidewalks in Brooklyn, which I thought was so surprising, but also... Lots of dreams here. Yeah, (laughs) I love mugwort. I actually, all the mugwort in my garden, I found it growing at like this little historic village that they have in town. Like they took like a bunch of these old cabins and they moved them into the center of our little town and they just have mugwort growing all over the place. And so when they were closed, I just took my shovel and, um, you know, just transplanted a few because I mean, I think they consider them weeds. So I think I was actually doing them a favor, but you know, I love having it in my garden and yeah, mugwort is such a potent, oh God, I love mugwort. And I think it also starts blooming in spring, depending on where you are as well. But mugwort, like fresh mugwort, using that in a tincture is so wonderful for the nervous system and for dreams, like you said. But yeah, I uh, I get excited. I get really excited just thinking about it. I love it. I also want pesto so bad now. Mm. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Yes. Wild ramp pesto is the most divine thing ever. You could add like nettle to it. You could add uh, chickweed, like those other sort of weedy plants that are also just so nutritious and so good for sort of nourishing the body after a long winter. Like I always say, spring is sort of a time to nourish the digestive system and the lymphatic system to sort of get things flowing again. And so making Mm -hmm. that pesto and just adding it to your food, uh, it's such, it's good medicine. We talk so much about nettles on this podcast, (laughs) like obscene. I know. Well, I feel like, there's, there's certain herbs that are like gateway herbs for people. Like, cause I love to hear people's stories and like the different plants that got them into plant medicine. And definitely I feel like nettle, motherwort, rosemary are some of the three that I hear all the time that are the plants that really woke people up to working with plant medicine. But yeah. I, nettle is just, I mean, it's so abundant. It's so accessible it's yeah there's there's too much too many good things to say about nettle so I I totally get it and it's like a weed to most right so they're happy to let you harvest as much as you want most Mm -hmm. of the time it's a weed but it's also like so steeped in folklore too which is fascinating Mm -hmm. like there's so many different legends and myths about nettle and so many different uses it's such a versatile herb too so I feel like there's I mean, maybe that's the reason why it's so popular. There's just so many different facets to it. So many different faces to nettle. Yeah. I remember being a kid and visiting family in England and the neighbor teaching me that like dock leaf that grows next to nettle will like cure the sting of it. And she's like, this is an important lesson. Anything that stings you, the remedy is nearby. And I like will never never forget it. Well, that's (laughs) very similar. Like that, it's so true though. You know, poison ivy, for example, obviously not great for the skin, but usually jewelweed is growing right next to it, which is a wonderful anti-itch herb. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's amazing how these patterns like already exist in nature. You just have to learn how to see the patterns. I think that was one of the biggest things for me to learn as an herbalist is it's not about memorizing constituents. It's about learning the patterns, you know? Oh, I love that. Yeah. 
because and I think I took this course in college in art school. It was called Geometry in Nature. It was the most wild, like theoretical math class I had ever taken, but it really opened my eyes to how, you know, mathematics, patterns, all of this exists in nature everywhere. And so even on a scientific level, nature exists in that way. So yeah, there's just, oh my God, you could go down a rabbit hole and just get lost and all that. <laughs> I'm already doing that in my head right. now. Right. Where am I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just spiraling around. Uh-huh. You're like, what other patterns have I seen? Like, what else can I look at? <laughs> so I think that we might be running out of time here. Um, but before we go, Val, where can our listeners find your work? Yeah, definitely. So I have a website at woodspells with an S.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook under Woodspell Apothecary. And now, of course, I have my own physical shop in Gladwin, Michigan. It's not open yet, like I said, but hopefully by summer 2022, it will be open for people to actually come in and buy plant medicine. So, yeah, those are the main places. Thank you so much, Val and listeners, for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k 8 Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Tune into next week's episode where we talk about the role of cannabis and soma in magic and ritual. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.